0: Good morning to everyone who is a guest and our regular attenders. It is a very good morning as we are having baptism. And so we can celebrate that together. So we are suspending our series in Matthew for just today. And we're going to look at a baptism passage in Acts chapter 2. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 29 through verse 41 once you've found it in your Bible, then I would ask as you stand uh, in reverence as we read God's word. Acts two twenty nine to 41, and these are the infallible words of God. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls, and you may be seated. So we have a great opportunity to stand in celebration and uh, in solidarity with our baptism candidates this morning. And so it's suiting that we look at what baptism is and the way the Bible presents the concept of baptism. And what we just looked at here this morning is what's happening at Pentecost. When Peter is preaching a powerful, clearly spirit-driven message to the crowd. Peter is telling his audience that what they've just witnessed is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy in the Old Testament. And then he goes on to connect King David to Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he is showing that Jesus Christ is greater than David, even in his death. He points to the fact that David's tomb is still there for Peter's audience to see. And David has been dead for a thousand years, and yet his tomb is still there. David's dead. David is still dead. David's body and soul are still artificially divorced from one another. And that's truly what human death is. is a temporary, unnatural divorce of body and soul. It was never meant to be that way, but because of sin, it happens. But David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he wrote the Psalms, is also a prophet of sorts. And David knew that one of his grandsons would be resurrected and to take his throne... And to exalt it to even greater and deeper cosmic and eternal glory. David's tomb is still there. David's body and soul are still divorced from one another. But now this greater David, this greater son that came from David's body, Jesus Christ, his body and soul have just been knit back together in resurrection. And he comes walking out of the grave. And that's the basis for all that we do and think and say and worship as Christians. Peter here in his sermon is presenting Jesus Christ as the better David on the better throne and he is leaving his audience without any excuse. They've been witness to all of this. They've seen it with their own eyes. They have no excuse whatsoever. And this clearly forces Jesus' Jewish audience into a serious time of decision. If Christ is who he says he is and who the Old Testament says he is, then they must bend the knee to this king or they will be faced with being condemned by the prophets who spoke to them, by David, who told them about this, that was going to happen, and ultimately they are going to be abandoned and condemned by God himself. But Peter closes up this portion of his sermon in verse 34 and 35 with what I always like to call God's favorite Bible verse, because this Bible verse shows up everywhere in the New Testament. It's like a big E on the eye chart. Psalm 110.1 is what Peter is quoting here, and it is absolutely a controlling theme for all New Testament significance. Psalm 110.1 says exactly this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, and we're not going to do a... Deep dive on that, but there's two different words here for Lord. The first one is the title of God, the name of God, Yahweh, and the second one is Adonai, or an earthly Lord. So basically, what the Psalm is saying is that King David is looking to a king that is better than himself. And God is saying to that king who is better than David, Set up my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. In other words, this is the Father telling the son, after he has completed his mission on earth, the father tells the son, wonderful. Now come up, sit on this throne at the right hand of glory and you will stay there until all your enemies have been made your footstool. And Christ ascended to heaven 10 days before the events of Pentecost and now at Pentecost while Peter is preaching, he is forcing his audience to acknowledge the significance of these events that they've just witnessed and he is pushing them to respond to this. This isn't just information to take in, this is a life-giving message to respond to And so the people, when forced to see the kingship and the sovereignty and the dominion of Jesus Christ, do respond favorably. Verse 37 says that they were cut to the heart, which means they got it. They were convicted. The Holy Spirit was working to convict them of all this. And yet the Holy Spirit was still not done. He had clearly convicted them of their sin, and so they're left wondering with the next step. Okay, what now? What do we do now? And in verse 38, Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now this is a unique time in history, uh, because the events of Pentecost are just happening, so there's certain elements here that are unique to this audience, and yet there's an underlying principle that remains true. And baptism has remained with us. timing of the Holy Spirit and all this is unique to the Pentecost events, and yet, for us, the outward forms remain. Peter's response is that they need to repent and be baptized, and notice how naturally these two are linked, okay? It's just like, if you're going to do this, then you're going to do the next one. If you, if you follow this chain, the next one just naturally follows. These are links in a chain. And we know that baptism and water don't do anything magical or superstitious, Yet, baptism remains an outward symbol that signifies what Christ has done in the hearts of all those who have repented of their sin. The repentance comes first, and that is what connects us to Christ. It's through repentance, through faith, that we are connected to Christ in the gospel, and baptism must follow. And Repentance and faith are often put together, and, and I think sometimes there's a question as well, what's different, what are they the same? It's really two Two sides of the same coin. If I were to turn from that piano to the baptism tank, that's one action. Repentance is turning from sin, turning from the old life, turning from being in Adam. Faith is the positive side of it, what you're turning to. It's the same exact action. Faith is the negative side, you're turning, you're leaving the old dead man behind, you're leaving Adam behind, you're leaving your sin behind, and now you are turning your face to Jesus Christ in saving faith. So it's a turning from and a turning towards, and you cannot have one without the other. You cannot be in Adam and Christ at the same time. You must be in one. So this is a full life change. This is a complete U-turn, this is a complete change of mind, a complete change of heart, a complete change of direction. And so this is why these terms are often used more or less interchangeably in the Bible, faith and repentance. They're looking at the same action of conversion. And just as Jesus himself went down at the beginning of his ministry to be baptized, so now we follow him in that act. And again, Old, Tas- Old Testament baptism was uh, symbolizing something uh, unique to its own time. It was symbolizing purification. The Jewish people sometimes would practice baptism to make themselves clean before entering the temple. So what was being symbolized was a cleansing and a washing from sin. And Gentiles, when converting to the Jewish, cult- or the Jewish culture or the Jewish religion, would be baptized on uh, entering Judaism. Jesus himself was baptized by his cousin John so that he could fulfill all the purification requirements for both Jew and Gentile as they would come in to the kingdom of God of God. And here, Peter's method of showing Christ's authority, of getting his audience to reckon with the absolute authority of Jesus Christ to convert and then be baptized is completely consistent with Christ's own message himself. When Jesus leaves at the end of the gospel that we're currently working through in our preaching series in Matthew, at the very end, and when giving the Great Commission, Jesus says in Matthew twenty-eight, eighteen and 19, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth have, past tense, have, been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And notice, Jesus doesn't tell them to go. Jesus tells them to therefore go. Well, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, it's because all power, all dominion, all authority has been given to Jesus Christ as he ascends up to the Father. He is sitting on that throne ruling the cosmos from the right hand of glory and on that basis you go and announce his lordship to the nations. On that basis, we, uh, we convert and we, we preach the gospel and we preach for conversions so that the nations can come in. And Jesus connects that, the preaching of the gospel, the conversion of people with Christian baptism. This is clearly an important step to walk through in our Christian lives. Being baptized is just as much an act of obedience as restraining your anger giving a soft answer to turn away wrath. Baptism is just as much a step of obedience as telling the truth when it's difficult. And so if we're going to acknowledge the dominion of Christ over all earthly and all heavenly matters, we must acknowledge that he has commanded baptism as well. Baptism is in the name of the Father, the Son and the Spirit, as we do it, we're Trinitarian Christians, it's, it's right in our name, it says right in the name, we're, we're Trinitarian, so we do this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, to show that we have changed allegiances, and that's also why baptism is a public act, because we are showing we have switched sides, we have been transferred from Adam to transfer to being in Christ. There's a new person that comes out of the water, symbolically. It's like a soldier putting down the flag of one nation and then changing his uniform and his flag to that of another nation. What's being symbolized here is a drastic, a radical change of allegiance. Who do you belong to? And everyone in this room is represented by a covenant head. We're all born in Adam, and through the gospel, we can be transferred to Christ. But you are represented by one of those two heads. And you will face God one day with one of those two men as your representative. And of course, we want an advocate who never fails. We want to be in Jesus Christ, which is why we preach the gospel and we share the gospel with people so that they can be transferred in to this new kingdom of priests. We also recognize that there are different modes and timings of baptism which are practiced historically by different groups of Christians. We're Baptists, so we practice believers' baptism by immersion. And the word baptizo does quite literally mean to immerse or to dip or to submerge. And the the word is used in ancient language of pickles. You'd baptizo your cucumbers, you put them right in there. If a ship had sunk to the bottom of the sea, it was baptizoed. Okay, so this picture's going all the way in. And yet we still do want to be gracious with other Christians who practice things differently. Sometimes we talk here about Reformed Catholicity, which simply is a A shorthand way of saying that we have reformational, we have evangelical, we have protestant convictions, it's not that we're lost in the night not knowing which direction we're going and yet we want to be small c catholic in the sense that recognizing God's kingdom is big and coming to terms with the fact that other Christians practice different things. But this is an explanation for why we practice what we do. Because the language of the Bible itself seems to be consistent that the person is going under just like Christ did. And this baptism symbolizes the old man going down in death and then coming up in new life. And I think that is a fitting picture of what's happening in believer's baptism. The water is not magical. It's not superstitious. But it is a fitting symbol of death and resurrection. There's also an element of being cleansed from sin, of faith and repentance. And it is an act of obedience that is so closely tied to conversion that the Bible does talk almost interchangeably. To say someone has been baptized is another way of saying that they were saved. And of course, if we parse this to the fine details, of course people can be saved without being baptized. The thief on the cross didn't have time to get baptized. However, under normal circumstances, baptism is a natural and normal step of obedience after we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. And so while baptism is symbolic and doesn't do anything in itself, it's not mystical... It is also not just a bare symbol either, and I think many of us may fall into that trap, that this is just a bare memorial, just a bare symbol that doesn't really convey anything of significance. But in a spiritual sense, because it's an act of obedience, the Holy Spirit is closely tied to it as well. God is spiritually present with us here this morning as we're about to do this, and this means that you can look at baptism not just as a symbol of your obedience, but also as a sign and seal of what God is doing. And so often, I think we reduce just baptism to something that we're doing. But really, more properly, more deeply, baptism is something that God is doing. Okay? You don't baptize yourself. You're baptized by someone, by, uh, by a representative of the church. And it's connected to church life, at least it, it ought to be. Because this is God's sign and seal. Baptism is God's symbolic way of saying, yeah, that one belongs to me. And that one belongs to me. And that one belongs to me. So, this isn't just something we render to God, as true as that may be. It is also, in a very true sense, something that God is doing to us. He's signing and sealing us. And He has promised to save to the uttermost everyone who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. So, this is a wide open invitation to all who will come to the Lord Jesus. Verse 39 through 41, it goes on For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord God, our God, calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And So the promises that God gives to believers are no longer just for the Jews, and we saw that this morning in Sunday school, and we talk about the expansion of God's kingdom people. It's a multi-ethnic kingdom now. And it's for future generations as well, for those who are far off, Gentiles. And it's for people who haven't been born yet. These promises are vast, and they're big, and they're expansive. It's for all those whom God is going to call to himself. And God is in the business of calling all kinds of people out of the darkness and into the light. And so when we think back to that promise uh, from Psalm 110.1, set up my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. God has multiple ways of conquering his enemies and the best and the most glorious one is by turning them into friends okay that is a very real way that God overcomes his enemies is by adopting them into his family and saying you're mine now that's the way we want all God's enemies to be conquered ideally as we preach the gospel and as we evangelize this is what we want this is what we're aiming for and God has promised to call many to himself But notice also that there seems to be a very tight correspondence in verse 41 between those who received the word and those who were baptized. So it was just a natural next step. And because these are adults who are being baptized this morning, I think it's also worth looking at verse 39, which says this promise is for you and your children. And Nathan and Eilish already have a little scarlet. And it might be easy to assume that this is an automatic thing, that if your parents are Christians, that means you automatically are too. And that's not what the Bible says, because it is qualified that promise is made specific when it says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So this isn't automatic, and yet there is a very obvious connection between parents and children. And God' ordinary, uh, His ordinary way of working in families, passing the gospel from one generation down uh, to the next. And so for everyone who's here this morning, There's a word here for us to consider as we walk through this step with Jeremy and with Nathan and with Eilish. If you're here this morning and you know the Lord in a saving way and you have taken this step of baptism already, then let this morning remind you of your own salvation and how God has put his name on you, he's called you Christian, he put his name on you, and he put his sign and seal on you at your baptism. And this ought to spur us on to live as though we actually belong in God's family. That our actions and our lifestyle and our words are consistent with God's name being on us. If you know the Lord and you have yet to be baptized, then maybe this morning can encourage you to start taking steps to prepare yourself for this step. And we would love to help you with that, if you like. I was somewhat awestruck this morning. I was wondering, you know, this church is still fairly new and small and... Humble circumstances, as you can tell. But what's remarkable is that this morning we're going to do baptisms number 19, 20, and 21. Isn't that remarkable? For a little church that did its first baptism a year and a half ago, God is continuing to add living stones into his kingdom. And we're happy to do it again. But if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord in a saving way, then think through what God thinks of your sin. And Tim read that this morning. The Bible has serious warnings for those who persist in their sin. For those who want to cling to the old ways of Adam. And maybe you can be reminded of how badly you need to be cleansed and change allegiances. And baptism is a graphic picture of exactly that transfer. Of going down in death and coming up in new life. And everyone that's breathing here this morning will have to descend very literally into the water of death at some point in our lives. And that is not negotiable. That's a when, not an if. The question is if you will come back up in new life. And Christ promises that all who are his will come back up in new life. Those who persist in their sin will sink eventually into the lake of fire. But those who are raised with Christ come out of the water this morning symbolically at their baptism and physically at the return of Jesus when our bodies are resurrected out of the ground and body and soul are knit back together together once again, for the new creation. It's sometimes been said to summarize it that if you have only been born once, you are going to die twice. But all those who have been born twice will die only once. Future resurrection, future glory in a new created heaven and earth await you. And if you've got questions about all this this morning, then please, gladly, come talk to one of us about what it means to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to move from Adam to Christ and to see the substance of what we are going to represent symbolically here this morning. So we're going to close in prayer and then I'm going to ask our baptism candidates to come up and they're going to read their testimonies and share with us how God has been working in their lives and then we will proceed with the baptism itself. Father God, we thank you for your kindness. We want to thank you for your passion, for your own glory, for your zeal, for your name to be famous among the nations. Lord, and I pray that we as a church and we as individuals would share that zeal to get the gospel out, to see the nations come to you, to see people come in one by one into your kingdom, that they may know you in a saving way, that they can have peace, that they know that they are a guest at your table and that you have covered them completely in your righteousness. Lord, I want to thank you this morning, especially for Nathan and Eilish and Jeremy, as they have been transferred. Lord, and as they are going to walk through symbolically what that looks like this morning. And I pray that for us as a church, that we would be encouraged by this, and that we would keep our covenant to them as well, to uphold each other, to encourage one another, to spur each other on to love and good works. And I pray for all our guests this morning too, Lord, that wherever they are at, with you that this would be a time of uh, considering their standing with you and uh, what obedience looks like in terms of next steps Lord thank you for your goodness and I pray that you'd be with us as we proceed now pray this all in the strong name of Jesus